Good morning. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open up to uh, the book of Galatians. Sid, this is you. Um, we're going to continue our journey going verse by verse through the book of Galatians. And today we're going to pick up and revisit from a little bit of last week, uh, beginning in verse 15. And this is God's word given to his people that we might hear it and receive it as the word of God. Galatians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, as we gather here this morning, we do so desiring to meet with you. We do so coming in faith to ask that you would condescend to meet with us. That you, the maker and creator of all things, would reveal your son in us. Father, we thank you for the miracle of faith. We thank you for the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. May he be praised today. Lord, we ask that you would convict us of our sin that you would enlighten our minds with the truth of your gospel, that you would renew our wills, that we might grab hold of Christ and treasure him both now in this life and in the life to come. We ask all these things, pleading the merits of Christ alone. And it's in his name that we pray. And all God's people agree. As we began our study last week, it was clear to us that Paul is seeking to explain and establish his apostolic independence. Now that's fancy words for, he was not taught the religion of Christianity. In other words, he did not learn through instruction the Christian faith, and then go on to proclaim it. I think many of us have an expectation that that is the role that seminary should play in the life of a future pastor. That we want them to go and learn from better scholars, more well-read, more learned men, more godly men, more faithful men, men with, who have seen and done ministry for years, and they would there learn the errors to avoid and the pitfalls to avoid. But also, they would learn the structure and discipline of the study of the Word of God for the preparatory work required to then go into ministry. What we say here in Galatians does nothing to undermine that vision. What we say here does nothing to usurp the idea that Paul should not bother establishing this apostolic independence. 
Instead, we need Paul to combat the false teachers that are infiltrating the churches that he planted years before by correcting their error, by rebuking their undermining assaults of his validity or trustworthiness as an apostle. In other words, these false teachers were trying to convince and were seemingly on their way doing that very thing to change the gospel from the message that Paul had proclaimed and tie it back to a works-based view of God's law where you must obey God's law in order to be saved. Whereas in the gospel, we know that we are saved because of our faith, not in our own works, not in our own scorecard, but in the works and righteous life of Jesus Christ. So in seeking to undermine Paul's apostolic independence, they are trying to say, Paul doesn't have the authority to proclaim to you as absolutely true this message that he's given you. Because it's devoid, in their eyes, of essential elements of the Jewish faith. So they're accusing Paul of inventing it on his own or misremembering what he was taught. But Paul here in these verses is absolutely refuting the idea that he learned the gospel by instruction. Rather, Paul is asserting the truth that he received the one true gospel by revelation, not instruction. And this might sound like a bunch of academics throwing philosophical and logical arguments at each other, and there's a degree to which that is what's happening. But it's not all that's happening, and it's powerless to explain the motives that illustrate why this is happening. So when we look here at Paul writing this letter to a to some churches that he had planted, what he is trying to do is tell them that they are sliding away. They are drifting away from the gospel. They are muddling the gospel. And he does so by saying, hey, 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 whoa. If you're going to say that Peter is an authority because he was with Jesus you must understand that I too was with Jesus. Peter for years and me not that long. But in the same way that in the upper room the resurrected Christ appeared, so too he appeared to me. I was not taught this gospel. I was given it. And I was given it by the same one who gave it to Peter and James and John. It comes by way of revelation. Notice the three active verbs in verses 15 and 16. 
But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me. Did you catch the three verbs here? Set me apart, called me, reveal. These are actions done by God suddenly interrupting the life of Paul. Set me apart from my mother's womb. This is not foresight about the condition of Paul's heart. It's a decree of consecration. You, Paul, even as far back as the conceiving moment of your life, I will use you as an apostle to the nations. It's a decree of consecration. And then we see later in that same verse, the the verb here, called me. Called me. Now, we use call in in a variety of ways. So if anybody's phone is still active and not on silent, we might have the pleasure of an interrupting call during our service. That's why I do my best to put it on Do Not Disturb. So we use a telephone to make a call. But what is it an attempt to do? It's an attempt or invitation to connection, to personal interaction, right? When we make a call, we are offering and asking in that moment, yes? It's an invitation to talk, to communicate, to relate. Children, once you're grown up and out of the house, Make sure that you still call your mom. Make sure you still connect with your dad wherever possible, yes? That we might maintain or grow in the intimate nature of our relationship. This is the the challenge and beauty of being known and loved and knowing and loving others in your life. When we say called in the Bible, it is not always a mere invitation. It could also be used as a selection. I have called you, Mike. I didn't call other people. I have work for you. So I am tapping you to come and join me in an activity or to take care of it on my behalf or behalf of someone else. There's a sense in which we could use, oh, I called upon the deacons for that. Oh, I called upon the elders for that. There's also the use of the word call in the scripture, especially in the Old Testament. The phrase called upon is most oftenly representing a moment of public worship of God. So when you hear Abraham or uh, Jacob call upon the name of the Lord, it's not a cry out for salvation. It's the act of salvation producing the worship of God. And so you can call upon the Lord's name, I hope, many times in a single day. And you didn't get saved many times that day. You please laugh. 
You called upon the name of the Lord because you were praying to him and speaking to him and worshiping him. In all those instances, you're believing the gospel, trusting in Christ, and communicating with your Father in heaven. When Paul uses this phrase here, called me, we have a question. The question is, was this calling an outward event, like a phone call? Is this God inviting Paul into something? Or is this an inward action of God creating the very thing he's demanding the use of? Called me. God called me to this mission. Is it outward, event-focused, or is it inward, an internal filling of the Spirit, whereby you grab hold of Christ? And then we have, in the following sentence, this same idea of calling, perhaps, in different language. The language here is, reveal his son. Now, this is very important for us to understand in the same way that little children understand objects. If you've ever played with a toddler or, a, uh, you know, especially the kids who are in that phase of life where they're cruising but not running, you know what I mean? They pull up on the couch, and wherever that couch is, as long as it goes, they can make their way. But as soon as they take their hands off, kaboom, on their butt, backside. Kaboom to the ground. If you play with a child in that age, near a couch, and you have a ball or a little dinosaur or toy car of some kind, and you slide it out of their view underneath the couch, in their mind, it appears to have vanished. And then you reach back under and pull it out, thus revealing the object. And in, let's not look down on kids that age because magicians play and make use of this same reality. You didn't know that he magically had a quarter behind his hand when he showed you his empty hand. But when he pulls it out of your ear, you're pretty sure that the coin was never actually in your ear, but it's awesome to watch that kind of sleight of hand, yes? And so this thing appears, and we react to it as if it was made in that moment. But it wasn't made in that moment. It was shown in that moment. When the Bible talks about things that are revealed, it does not usually mean things that are created in that moment. It usually indicates things that were always true, things that were always there, they just weren't before our eyes. And then in the revealing act, the quarter, which was there, that's thought to be in our nose or our ears, is then shown, not created, revealed. So when you're playing with the kid, they think you're an incredible maker of things. And then as they grow up, they begin to remember that there was a ball 
it went under the couch and can be retrieved again. That is not the sense in which the scripture is talking about. So here you have Paul relating this event and experience of seeing Christ, and he refers to it as a calling and a revealing, both done by God. So an outward event, yeah, absolutely. An inward event, yeah, also true. The outward event is the precipitating action that created the revealing of Christ. Is the gospel true with or without you? Does God need me to believe the gospel for it to be true? But when he renews me, recreates me in my heart, he takes away my will of rebellion, right? And then I adore what I used to despise. And I grieve what I used to celebrate with varying degrees of experience. So when Paul here is talking about being set apart, that's the language of holiness, but it's also the language of consecration. So God had determined to use Paul in his ministry. But that didn't happen right away. Unlike John the Baptist, who loves Jesus in the womb, Paul will live many years of his life antagonistic against Christ. Paul is, for many years, the false teacher that he's correcting in this letter. He was the false teacher, wait for it, of the same message that he is correcting. So when he says God called him, he's not saying that that's the same thing that began in the womb or in the eternal decree before he was even formed in the womb. He's saying, I was an enemy of God up until this moment. And in this moment, everything suddenly changed. So he's appealing to the suddenness of his conversion. And he's also appealing to the unique nature of that experience because it was tied to his apostolic calling. I am not an apostle. The apostolic age ended. We don't need apostles anymore because we have the scripture. God's word is complete. We don't need to wait for volume two, amen? So how do we, so many centuries later, understand this moment and connect it to what more broadly is spoken about in the New Testament? Well, one thing we can do is to see if Paul has told this story in any of his other letters. And so I'm going to draw your eyes to the use of these verbs in 1 Corinthians 9.1, 1 
1 Corinthians 9.1. And then again in 1 Corinthians 15.8. I'm going to try and protect myself from many rabbit trails. So we're going to look just at this section where Paul is using this word appear. Which means simply to see. To see with your eyes. This external action of our senses. 1 Corinthians 9.1, Paul asks the question, among many questions, have I not seen Jesus our Lord? What is the plain meaning of that question? Did I not myself, with these eyeballs, behold Christ? And people are like, yeah, but Paul, you weren't with Peter and the boys, like pre-Pentecost. And Paul's like, I know, I was on the other team. And I was killing y'all. Until when? Christ appeared to him. Christ showed himself to Paul. Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? And then later on in the same letter in the resurrection chapter, chapter 15, Paul doesn't ask the question this time. He simply asserts the truth of it amidst many truths and points. He states, Paul does, that Jesus appeared also to Paul in the recounting of people who saw with their own eyes, touched with their own hands. I don't think there were many who licked him because we don't see many, many children in that room. And children do lick each other, I can attest. So saw with their eyes, touched with their hands, heard with their ears, probably going to pass on tasting. In other words, that's what the sacrament of the supper is for. Oh, you're welcome. Jesus, the resurrected Christ, showed himself. Did he appear to Paul in a way by being created again? No. Instead, he revealed who he was in the deepest truth. Eternal God passing through the gates of heaven. To come and live and die as our substitute. To be raised in the newness of life on Easter morning. So when we talk about this called me, revealed to me, we do it in a theological framework. And so this is the best use of the Westminster Shorter Catechism or Longer Catechism. If you're not familiar with that document... Repent and start studying. It's probably the greatest discipleship tool I have outside of the Word of God because it teaches me the Word of God. The Scripture, infallible. Westminster, fallible, but revised over time purified by great framework, all under the great truth of sola scriptura, scripture as the ultimate authority. 
But this is a great discipleship tool, and it goes in structure simply ask a question, answer it, and then ask the next important question. There are tons of times in this document where you ask a question and it gives you a vocab answer that you might not be familiar with. So then the next question is, well, what do we mean by that term? And then we answer it. And if there's vocab there, the next question will tell you what that is. And so you get in these long strings of question, answer, question, answer, question, answer. And when you're done with three questions and those answers, you have a much more comprehensive understanding of what the Bible says. And if you're a Berean, which I hope we all are to some degree, we will check the catechism by cross-referencing where they base their use of this term or phrase from in Scripture. Similar to how the New Testament makes use of the Old Testament. These terms have a historical meaning. Let's learn the meaning and then see how it relates to what's happening here and now, this is one of my favorite questions. It's question 31 from the Shorter Catechism. It asks the question, what is effectual calling? A term given in the previous question and its answer. Called in what sense? What do we mean by the call or the salvific call, the saving call. Not a general invitation, but a specific giving. What is effective calling when it comes to salvation? That's the question here. And it gives a four-part answer. And I know that when we come to these kinds of questions we can feel like this is only academic thinking. What does this have to do with trusting God in persecution? What does this have to do with the difficulties of Christian living in a pagan world? My response to you is everything. It has everything to do because we are told to worship God with our whole selves, right? Deuteronomy 6.4, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And then what are we to do? What are we to respond? How do we worship him? Well, we love him with all of our... All right, so we got heart, soul, strength. What was that third one? Our What? You are not free to leave theology up to the pastors and professors. Your God says to know him through the study of his word that you might understand with your mind, but it is not only knowledge, but it is never less than knowledge. You with me? So how do we understand this? Well, our forefathers 
gathered for a number of years asking and answering these type of questions. What does the Bible say about moments of conversion? What is actually happening in those moments? And they fought about it for days and weeks to hammer in and tie down to the tightest response they could give. And to our cultural shame, this is the children's catechism of their day. And we think it's for professors. That speaks to our biblical illiteracy. It speaks to our distracted nature where these don't have to be a priority for us. I'll let the podcast do that work. I'll let my pastor do that work. I don't have to think. That's hard. That takes time and dedication and practice. And we have more fun things to do, we think. Is there someone in your life that you painfully ache that they would know Christ? A rebellious child who's running away from her faith, denying the goodness of the family she grew up in, thinking, I want someone like a Christian man, but I don't want any of that religious stuff. I was having a conversation with someone earlier this week about that very scenario. She wants a Christian man without the Christian. And my response was, so she's going to get a pagan man. It's the only way that works. What is he supposed to pray that God would do in his daughter's heart? What's the substance of the cry beyond save? And if you need to cry Hosanna because that's all you have, do it. Cry it out. Hosanna, my kid. Go for it. Lord Almighty, help. Hosanna. Save. Salvation. Do what you do. Go for it. I'm not poo-pooing those prayers. I'm saying the Bible has more to offer you in those moments than an exasperated help. That's how I use the catechism in this question. What is effectual calling? It has four parts. Four parts. Convict them of their sin and misery. What's the first thing you want God to do in saving your child? Oh, Heavenly Father, would you, would you convict them of their sin and misery? Show them the emptiness of the life that they are living, the futility of the desires of their heart. Would you oh, render severe mercy in their life that they would see their own inability to do what you have designed for them to receive, not accomplish? Convict them of their sin. Their misery of life. Ask them, Lord, haunting questions about why everybody wants to get so drunk they can't remember 
the fun they're having. Fun. Right? Show them the emptiness of this way of life. Show them the futility of friendship when destructive activity is the only thing you really have together. Right? You need new friends and a new way of life. Convict them of their sin and misery. And as you do that, O Lord, give me opportunities to share the message of the gospel with them. Right? To give them the information about Jesus. Give me opportunities to show and explain why God's way of life is better. Because most of the time, our wayward young ones of any age have been told that God is a mean cosmic cop running around the universe trying to make sure nobody has fun. Mature believer, I ask you, does God desire fun for you? Does he desire exclusively fun for you? Oh, so this Christian life's going to have some turns and twists in it, huh? Is his highest priority your lasting comfort in this life? Ask any martyr in any age. No. Because this world is not long, right? The eternal one to come, way better. God, convict them of their sin and misery. Give them the message of the gospel. And friends, this is where we say, through me. Give me the opportunity to teach them the gospel. He made it. We broke it. Jesus fixes it. God remakes it. The eight-year-olds in this room can tell that story, yes? The 15-year-olds in this room could tell that story, yes? Conviction of sin. Information of the gospel. The third thing we pray for is the renewal of their will. In other words, the Bible says that though there might be many opportunities for salvation, the rebel has no capacity for salvation. They must love what they were born hating. They must long for that which they've spent a lifetime running against. In other words, we need a new heart, right? The Bible has lots of ways to talk about this. Lord, they were born blind. Can you give them eyes? Did they lack eyes? No, we're using it in a spiritual sense, the metaphorical sense. Give them ears to hear your voice, that, that you would call their name and they would walk out of the sheep pen and follow you as their shepherd, John 10. Repent of their sin and misery. Be convicted of that in such a way that the gospel challenges the presuppositions of 
the enemy. And then what follows is a beautiful understanding that we need God to be the one to act. Our four parents in the church, they coined this phrase. Are you ready? No one makes themselves a Christian. God makes you a Christian. No one makes themselves a believer. God does that. God has the active verbs of choosing and giving and granting. Read Luke 10, read Acts 13, and you will be convinced, I hope, that Romans 9 is very true. That God gives what he commands from us. He gives us faith in Christ. He grants us the repentance following the regeneration that would lead us to want to be united to Christ. This is how it works. And so here, we ask for the renewing of their wills. Lord, give them new eyes. Lord, give them ears to hear your voice. Lord, give them a new heart that will receive and adore you. And fourth, let them embrace you, Lord. Call them to faith effectively. Don't call them in a way that is an invitation or an opportunity. Do this work, O oh Lord. You're the only one who can do it. The human heart is born hating God. Something in our heart must change for us to love what we used to despise. There are times where I think about my life and I go, yeah, the 11-year-old version of Kevin would not want this life. But the 48-year-old Kevin loves his life. Burdens, callings, joys, failures, I choose this. If I had a thousand choices, I'd choose it a thousand times. Because life with Christ is better than everything else. So when Paul is saying that Jesus Christ appeared to him, he means that he saw Christ. And so when we think about what happens to Paul in the event of this calling, he becomes what he wasn't before. We see in Acts 9, 1 through 21, which we're going to explore next week together. Paul's describing the events that had occurred at the time of his conversion. And I will preview you to see that in his story of how Jesus revealed himself to Paul, Paul stresses two main points. The first, that this was a sudden conversion. Paul was in the act of rebellious and merciless persecution of the church. Paul had one goal. I must destroy this message of Jesus. I need to wipe from the planet this message about Jesus Christ of Nazareth. 
It's blasphemy, it's heresy, and the believers are seditiously undermining the law of Moses. And then he met Jesus, and he loved what he hated. He embraced what he had rejected, and then he rejected what he had embraced his whole life. This is the event that gave Paul the gospel that he would later on preach. He was not taught by way of instruction. It was revealed to him by way of divine interaction. The resurrected Christ had a conversation with Paul that even the outsiders traveling with Paul heard but never saw. We'll get into that a little bit more next week. Sound good? So what is the witness of these few verses? The witness of these few verses is not only the establishing and convincing of Paul's apostolic independence, what he is saying is that no one can learn the faith exclusively. If you think your knowledge about Jesus is the basis of your salvation and union with Christ, I have news for you. You must trust the one described in that truth. It's not enough to assent to the probability, possibility, or even certainty of that idea. You receive it as the greatest treasure of your life that is so worthy of your delight that you would give up everything else you love in your life to protect it most. Like a pearl merchant who spent their whole life looking for that one perfect pearl. And then when they find it, they sell everything they have to have a pearl. Does that sound ridiculous to you? It's not a trick question. Would you sell your house, your car? Would you give away your children and your clothes to have a perfect pearl? Please say no. Right? No, that's preposterous. I don't care how cool the diamond is. Because you're not wanting that pearl so you can make more money off it. The pearl is itself the object of your delight. Christ might cost you everything you have in this temporal world, but you're not going to use Jesus to get something else. You're not selling the pearl of great price. You're adoring the pearl of great price. But it sounds so foolish to us. It's probably why that parable is mistaught pretty often. As if we're the pearl. Uh, guys, we're not the pearl. Jesus is the pearl. But it sounds ridiculous that someone would love the pearl so much they'd give up everything else. That's how the world hears the worship of Jesus. 
maybe he's cool, but like everything? And we full-throatedly say, everything, everything. Paul is saying, Jesus is the pearl of great price. But the world is saying, meh, at best. And most of the time, they're saying, well, the diamond merchant's over there. Well, the Bible tells us that stuff is monopoly money. This is the real treasure, amen? So here's what we do. How do we apply theologically the witness of this text? We repent of our unbelief. And we say, Lord, I am tempted to think that money is more relevant to my daily life than you are. Lord, I repent because I don't feel safe unless my stock, you know, my stock groupings are rising. Lord, I don't feel safe unless, insert temporary security. I don't feel safe unless I've checked my wife's phone. I don't feel safe if, if, if. Repent of your unbelief. Repent of the ways and places and times where you think something else is more beautiful than Jesus is. Something else is more valuable than Jesus is. Reject the materialistic consumerism of well, I'll worship Jesus as long as he gives me X. As if what we want from Jesus comes from his hands instead of his face. We repent of our unbelief, our mistrust. And then also, we trust in the active ability of God to suddenly convert and transform Anyone. There's no less likely convert than the Apostle Paul. In the act of killing the church, he is saved. You guys want to study that next week? We will. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we do repent of our unbelief. Father, we know that we have trusted in the offers and enticements of the world. We have indulged sin and believed lies, and we continue to do so. So we ask, O oh Lord, that you would transform us, renew us, radicalize us, consume us, that you would grow and we would shrink. Lead us in the way of love, no matter the cost. Father, Lead us in the repentance that you have granted and given us. And then, Father, in our union with Christ, may we trust you more and more. May we never see a family member as beyond your redeeming hand. May we never see a coworker who's so antithetical to the truth and beauty of your gospel that you could not in one heartbeat radically transform everything. Lord, teach us to pray in faith. Lord, teach us to trust that your Holy Spirit is able, that your goodness is real, and that your truth is ever 
everlasting. O Father in heaven, be glorified by us, in us, and through us. Only you have the power. Only you are that good. Only you are this wise. Where the world says that's foolish. And we sing songs about it. To your glory and fame we ask all these things and all God's people agree.